welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Sheldon Montero, Chief Product Officer at Publicis Sapien. Sheldon, really excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Can we? Just, let's just jump right into it. Can you take us through your career journey leading up to this point? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me. First off, um, Peter, really delighted to be on this uh, on this podcast. Um, I listen. I've listened to many of the episodes, and some of the people you've had on here are really, really inspiring. So, thank you for for what you do with this. Uh, of with course, this, of course. Um, with this podcast. Um, yeah, I'm happy to, to talk a little bit about my my background. Perhaps it makes sense to you know just back up a little bit and and talk about my childhood um, because that uh, had a large part in in my career journey and how I think about work and and life in general. I grew up in India, all over all over India. My father was a um, hotelier, um, and um, we moved around. Um, he was with um, the Welcome Group, which ran the had the franchise for the Sher- Sheraton at the time, and so we moved around from property to property. And um, I was literally in like six schools and and four colleges. Um, I, I sometimes uh, tell people that it was because I kept getting kicked out of those schools, but the reality is kept moving around. Um, that was a, a really important um, you know, aspect of my development because on the one hand, um, as I think back to my childhood, I don't have a whole lot of um, childhood friends, you know, grade school friends that I keep in touch with. Uh, most of the, because we just kept moving around and I lost touch. Um, we didn't have social media at the time. Um, many, most of my friends uh, from back then are really from my college, um, college years. Um, but what I lost in terms of uh, personal connection, I, I gained in other ways. So for one of one of those ways is my attitude towards change, which is I realized at a very early age that change is constant, not because, um, you know, I, I liked it, but it was forced on me, you know, to settle yeah. into, new, um, into new schools. Um, and I got to experience a whole lot of new things, many of which I learned a hell of a lot from. The other aspect of uh, being the son of a hotelier is that I got to experience um, contrast. Um, you know, at the time, India India is very different today, but at the time, um, you know, there was a lot more contrast between being the son of a hotelier living in five-star hotels and, right. um, you know, essentially the experience that was, um, that I could, experiences I could see around me in India. So that contrast um, you know, really infused on in me from an early from an early age the need to really appreciate um, and be thankful for what we had, but also very sensitive to the fact that so much work had to be done in order to improve the world around us. And I'm really, really proud of how how much India has progressed um, since then. Every time I go back there to visit our offices, I'm blown away by how much progress there is, and also still excited about all of the progress there is to there is to come yet so with that with that chapter you know roughly around the age of of 14 my mom 
visited uh, the United Kingdom and she brought back a device called a ZX Spectrum. It was a little home computer um, invented by um, uh, Sir Clive Sinclair, who recently passed away, rest his, uh, rest his soul. Um, I think uh, Sir Clive did for um, a lot of kids in in Europe and Asia. You know what the what Steve Jobs did over here with with the Apple um, and the Commodore sixty four. Um, you know, it was really a fascinating journey. I fell in love with this machine. I took it apart two weeks after she bought it for me, <laughs> and that was where my journey with uh, with computers started. I literally went into repairing these machines and started a small uh, business that was all about helping others to repair their machines and uh, and build peripherals for for this this device. So that entrepreneurial spirit was something that um, grew in me at a fairly at a fairly early age. After finishing my higher education in India, um, I found myself on a vacation in Thailand visiting my parents, and I was offered a job at uh, a subsidiary of the Chicago Stock Exchange. Now, the Chicago Stock Exchange was um, building out the systems for the stock exchange of of Thailand, um, and I was um, assigned to a team that was building out graphical user um, interfaces for the brokers that were using the central uh, infrastructure. Right. Now, working with traders was a fantastic, another fantastic experience because, you know, with traders, a, another uh, characteristic there is that they thrive on volatility. <laughs> Everything, you know, that traders do is about seeking arbitrage when there are movements in the market. And that was another 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 example of where you know just working with that with that group of people and and creating systems for them taught me a lot about um, you know being exacting in what we do as well as leveraging opportunities to create to create competitive advantage. So I really enjoyed that experience. Spent a couple of years in Bangkok and then came to to the U.S. Uh, to um, the Boston area for my. Uh, to complete some uh, postgraduate um, education, and uh, towards the end of um, end of the program that I did uh, did over there, um, I saw this I saw this ad that appeared in the in the Boston Globe um, that really was you know the start of the next chapter, and it screamed. The headline on the ad was teamwork, and it talked about the kinds of things that they were looking for. In, in employees, um, they talked about the kind of work, and I still have that ad. I've circled the, um, I've circled the elements that really resonated with me, and I literally had to mail. This was back in '95. I had to mail a resume into wow. um, into Jerry Hussey was his name at at Sapient. He was a recruiter. And three days later, I found myself walking around Sapient's offices at uh, One Memorial Drive. I was blown away by what I saw. You know, in terms of the energy and the the style of working that we had in the in our offices at the time. I mean, literally back in '95, we were bringing in clients into our offices into what we call design centers, where we would be doing joint application development with them, uh, progressive development, where we would use time boxing and short sprints within the context of a workshop to, in real time, figure out what the future of their businesses would look like, right? Design, redesign processes, and then progressively enhance the prototypes that we developed in workshops to, to, um, to, to actually deliver working systems. 
it was that experience of watching that new style of collaboration that caused me to to join to to join the company and i have to say that um you know the rest is for me it has been history uh because you know i've been here for more than two decades and i've i've been able to reinvent myself so many times against a backdrop of a company ethos culture and set of values that has really persisted um you know the company and and the thing that i resonate with the most is that we always look at our role in the world as really creating transformational change and we do that through our clients that we work with and that was true then it's true it's true now even though you know there've been different media in which we've done it and for me personally in in that period i've had the opportunity to grow so much and and learn so much i mean i started here uh peter as an as an engineer um and um you know you're working for one of the large fund companies um one of the world's largest fund companies still is and so you know that initial formative experience as an engineer figuring out you know how to work with clients in this new mode through to working up the technology ranks from building larger and larger systems through right. clients figure out their entire enterprise architectures i was you know in in um, in the early 2000s i helped put together our strategy practices around um, around it and helping clients with enterprise architecture planning and their application portfolio planning i've had stints in on our marketing team I've run a portion of our business. I used to look after our portfolio out of uh, the central region of of North America. But then I really found that that and that was, you know, um mid uh, uh mid 2000s, I found that I craved really being in the business of making. And so once again I came back into delivery worked with um um one of the large telecommunications carriers in in the US to rearchitect and rebuild their entire customer infrastructure across commerce service um and support community as well and then um at the end of that stint uh, our ceo asked me to to take on a role uh, that was company wide looking after quality and methods uh which i did and thoroughly enjoyed because um one of the things i'm really passionate about is is great work um after after a few years in that role it was in um um I, I believe about 2012 that i had the opportunity to become our chief technology um officer for really the customer experience portion of our business um which i did for uh, roughly about 6 years and for the last 3 years i switched my orientation from engineering into into product uh, which has been another fantastic journey um this last uh, piece around product is is kind of you know it speaks to a lot of the evolution that we are seeing out there in the world right a shift from the very role of technology you know technology when i joined the company was all about you know hey how do we make businesses more efficient how do we improve these business processes and you know if i'm being a little tongue in cheek about it it was all about making the sausage factory more efficient right right and so from from that role of technology today we've moved to yes it still does that but it's also about being the primary mode of dialogue with 
the customers, right? So our clients' customers. So when you think about that shift from, you know, an enabler of efficiency to being a primary mode of dialogue with customers, it's on the one hand um, pretty straightforward. On the other hand, it changes everything because customers, you don't set their expectations. Customers build their expectations based upon experiences they have in their daily lives with their consumer tech. And so the role of product really is about moving at the pace of the customer. It's about moving with with the expectations of customers. It's about shifting from projects to focusing on what value can we create in the world? What value can we create for our customers? And as a result, what value can we create for our business? I keep just saying it boils down to outputs, outputs to outcomes. And that's been uh, that's been a huge learning experience. It's been a privilege to stand up that capability across um, across our company, and I see the um, I see the impact that shift has on our clients when we help them to make that shift themselves. So that's a little bit of the of the journey. I mean, it's it's an impressive journey, and there's so much that I want to jump into. I mean, even just starting from the beginning in terms of the constant change that you speak to, right? And then that's reflected later in your career, uh, the types of different roles that you played, and again, embracing that change, and even and then you talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, right, of standing up a business early in your life, focused on technology and fixing computers, but then now you've stood up a practice at a global organization. And, and I could tell the excitement as you talk about it is very similar to, you know, the glimpse of it I got as you speak to, to that early business standup. I mean, all of it makes sense. And, and before I jump all the way back to kind of those early childhood experiences, I just want to, you know, it, it, my first interaction with you, I don't know if you recall, is something around four years ago. And you were the first C-suite individual that I had ever interacted with, like period forget just within our organization, a client organization, just in general, in my relatively young career at the time, I think I was a senior associate. And I got to be on a, a pitch uh, in Boston with you for like a, a big a North American quick service uh, restaurant company. And and I remember, <laughs> I remember the intimidation immediately started when you walked in and you looked around the room, we had all the slides together and the story was coming together and, and I was there representing data and you looked at it and you said, well, what about what about this, this, and this, and this? And I was like, I don't know anything about data in those spaces. And I just remember being like, there's it, it immediately put into perspective how much more there was to learn. But then again, what I was just like impressed by, and now in you walking me through your journey makes so much more sense, um, is when we got in the room with the client, there got a point where the most senior leaders there were asking some of these questions that talked about technology so far beyond the guardrails that we usually played in at that time as an organization, like physical technology about testing point of sale and kiosk and service, things like that, like end to end. And the way you were able to stand up and talk about them uh, in a way that just oozed like expertise, I just, it was, it was difficult for me to wrap my head around. And so then since then, I've been able to work with you in a couple of different capacities, which I've really enjoyed because you're one of the more human leaders that I've kind of uh, interacted with, which I, I hugely appreciate. But the, now in seeing that you played you know, a business role across a region, uh, chief technology officer roles, like developer roles, product leadership roles, like all of this makes sense, right? And across two decades, I can't even, do you, do you keep a running count of the number of clients that you've worked on? 
I'm curious. I don't think I have a count either, either Peter, but um, I vividly remember that that interaction in, in Boston. Um, it was a fun pitch uh, for, for sure. Um, I didn't realize that, um, you know, I was I was that intimidating. So my apologies for... No, no, it wasn't. I, I want to just correct. That wasn't you. That was me, <laughs> right? I think I allowed myself to, to, to kind of... Uh, to fall into the trap of like being intimidated by how much I just realized I didn't actually know, right? Being three or four years into my career. So, so definitely that one's not on you. I need to own that one. But uh, it was, it was a formative experience for me because that was one of the early pitches that I got to participate in. And it's become something that I, I truly enjoy working on. But that, I just wanted to share that because it's all coming together to me now that I kind of listened to your career journey. But now jumping all the way back to your experience as, as kind of a child, um, I mean, that it had to be the word contrast, right? I think that's such a powerful concept to explore here um, because even as we work from client to client and we see in our industry clients that are of significant technology or digital or people or process maturity versus clients that are maybe earlier in that journey, we see that contrast. And then because of the experience in working with one or the other, we're able to then solve problems across that spectrum. That contrast that you experienced so early and in such a formative period of your life, I mean, that has to permeate kind of how you approach everything going forward, right? I have to imagine that's the case. It does. It does. Um, And it's very visceral, right? So when you're a child and you're looking at disparity, I mean... It um, it leaves an impression impression on you, right? Part of it also, you know, was it. You know, I talked about growing up in India, but part of it was also growing up in India. Um, you know, being Catholic, which was one uh, percent uh, of the population in India at the time, which added to an additional level of contrast with, um, you know, understanding understanding and empathizing with differences and the the beauty of um, the beauty of that experience is really the appreciation of of diversity difference and the appreciation of what it takes for people of different backgrounds uh, different religious beliefs different um, uh, different social strata still coming together in a melting pot which you know believes so passionately about the future and I think that that value system is part of what um, really excites me about being in the business that we are in, right? Because it isn't about just one client or one business, but it is about being able to work across industries uh, with so many different clients to help to help to produce things that are really impactful in the world. I mean, and how many how many people can look across their careers and um, and really look at, hey, I've worked in financial services, helping you know fund companies and uh, retail banks and commercial banks, or, or in retail or in telecommunications, um, you know, or in um, or, or in quick service, as you were talking about uh, earlier. Um, in energy, you know, I've 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 been part of programs that have built uh, pipeline management systems and scheduling systems for oil to move across the country, and I just consider myself fortunate to be able to 
to do work that matters across so many different different sectors. It's it's really a privilege to be able to do that um, in my role today, and you know, in the course of my of my career here. So it's something that um, you know I I think I prepared for because of those those formative years, just understanding, moving around, and and appreciating all of that change. Yeah, and so I relate to that resonates with me really strongly, just because for far less interesting reasons. I changed schools a bunch of times in kind of my elementary school tenure and then a little bit into high school. And I find now, uh, you know, I still in experiencing that sort of change, one was developed a skill set around being able to build relationships pretty quickly because you're thrusted into these types of new environments, new social environments. I think that's helped me in, in kind of the consulting industry that we work in. But I found that I find a lot of comfort in a balance in change, but a through line of stability. And now you come from a heritage of change, right? And, and having to be adaptable. But now you've spent, you know, over two decades at the same organization, and you've, but you've found, it seems like a balance of the through line of stability and being in the organization and being aligned to the culture and the spirit of the place that you work. But at the same time, having the variability of the many different clients, industry verticals, roles that you've played, because I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, somebody that is clearly a high performer and, and capable as yourself. There have to have been moments across your career where there was change opportunities for you outside of the organization that you weighed against the change that was presented to you here. So, I mean, how did you how did you make those decisions? How did you navigate that type of potential pivot in your career and and ultimately make the decisions you did? It's a great question, uh, Peter. Um, I think, again, on on this, I go back to some of the things I learned um, pretty young. so my father being a hotelier, um, I got to live in the place where he worked, right? And a number of the his assignments, I actually got to live on property, which meant um, that I actually got to see my father in action. One of the rituals that he would do that um, left an indelible impression on me was um, the stand-ups. Um, so, for instance, at the beginning of every day, front office staff, every team basically in the hotel, whether it was a front office or whether it was, you know, one of the crew running a restaurant. And you got to realize that in India, many hotels have like five, six restaurants. There's a lot of staff. Um, I think in, you know, in, in, in an average property, he'd be managing something like about 800 people or more. So you're dealing with um, and and managing a lot of people, but he really focused on the people and he focused on the rituals that helped people to be amazing in terms of creating great experiences for guests. And so one of the things that I have thoroughly enjoyed from my early days when, you know, the leaders in our company helped to grow me is that. I've always realized that it's about the people. It's about growing myself and it's a grow, about growing people around around me. And when I say growing, it's not just about skills that help us to do, you know, the, the core of the work we do, our jobs, but it's also about the how do we help people to reach their fullest potential, which is one of the reasons why I love what you do with this with this podcast, right? How do we help people to reach, to understand how they can create the most impact in the world? And how do we give them the actual skills to be able to do that, to reflect on their lives and to build the skills at the same time? So 
you know, in the as I mentioned in the early years, um, I was probably taking a lot more than I was giving uh, because you know we the company has always been really good at growing people, giving us opportunities. But back when um, um, back when I became um, CTO in 2012, like I've always started looking for where are the places that we can create talent that can just help us and our clients get to a different place. So back in 2000 and um, back in 2013, I saw um, that, hey, one of the gaps in the world right now is, you know, there is this explosion of marketing technology. And it's a pretty interesting space because it's really advanced in terms of tech. It's also a different type of tech because it's about things, doing things that hadn't been done before. And if you think back to IT at the time, it was all about reuse. It was all about big ERP. It was all about big platforms that had been done like, you know, a dozen times or more, hundreds of times before. But marketing technology was different because you you were doing things that hadn't been done before. Right. The other thing is that you were working with tribes, essentially advertising and marketing people that were different from technologists. Those worlds, you know, were just colliding. So we had to create talent that could thrive across both those dimensions. And so Mm. we started up our own program at the time. I sponsored it and I got great support from our leadership team at the time. Uh, we called it Chief Marketing Technology Officer University, and it was we structured it as a year-long MBA. We would select uh, 20 people from um, all across our company that wanted to invest in themselves and really lead them on a year-long journey at the intersection of marketing, technology, influence, and personal leadership. Right now, that... What I found happen right through the course of that program, I was learning a lot. I had the opportunity to give back a, a, a lot as well. And it became a movement in itself. So we've, we've been running that program since. Three years ago, we switched it up. We realized that, hey, you know, the, the, the role right now um, or the most important thing we can give back to our people now is help them to become transformational leadership leaders in a world that is digital. So we rechristened the program as a fellowship in uh, transformation leadership, and uh, we've expanded the size of the program right. and continued with that. And what I'm really, really excited and proud about is just how significant the influence of those, the people who have been through that program have been on our company and beyond our company. You know, they've just taken their careers to a different place, a different level. Um, I reflect on each and every person who's been through that. And even though it's an internal program, many of them proudly put it, for instance, on their LinkedIn profiles that they've been right. through that program, which speaks to the the how meaningful it was for them. But I think it's coming back to your question. It's all about how do we build the people and then allow people to build a company, to build our clients and to build the world. What I pull away from this is a different take on uh, a theme that I've explored before. This idea of if you're in an organization and the environment is not conducive to your growth, no matter how hard you try to, to find and navigate your path through it, then sometimes you simply need to remove yourself from the environment and find a new one that is. 
but you had the opportunity to first initially benefit from what was it an environment that successfully did that for you. Like you said, you took probably more than you gave early in your career, which I think is, is probably the, is a true statement, but also maybe an inaccurate one, because in terms of like the delivery that you produced, I think there's always, you know, a disproportionate um, value equation, right? Where like you have exponential learning opportunities, but you also deliver enormous amounts of hard delivery work, right? And that equation changes over time in your career. But then when you ascended to a level of, of executive leadership, you decided that I'm going to change the environment for our people in a major way that is going to facilitate growth in an explosive way for, for, for groups over time that's going to shape our organization and the organizations of our clients. That's, that's a really powerful thing to, to benefit from an environment and say, I'm going to now transform it to take that even further. So, I mean... Do you agree with that kind of sentiment, like for folks that are maybe not in our organization, but at others and even in other industries where if they don't have a leader doing maybe what you did, or if they don't have an environment that they themselves have been able to thrive in, uh, how, how would you recommend somebody manages that? I think you're spot on um, there, Peter. Look, the best way to uh, predict the future is to create it. And mm. so the best way to you know, to figure out what your next environment is, is rather than, you know, right now we are in the middle of the, the great resignation. And I look at that and say, like, look, uh, we are in a time of great change, uh, particularly for people that are in our profession, doing anything that is related to technology and digital. We happen to be in a truly exciting time. We also happen to already be in platforms or companies which are capable of, you know, really creating a dent, but creating that dent comes down to creating an environment which allows for uh, people to do amazing things. And so I've always centered myself in that way, which is if I don't like something, if I if I see something where, where there is a gap, is it going to create, I ask myself, is that going to create a sufficient amount of leverage if, if we change this? And if the answer to that is is yes, and um, you know, weight against other things that I could be spending my time on turns out to be high leverage, that's where I invest the time, even if it is not core to the job description that you know I came into the job with, right? So, for instance, when you know going back to to being elevated to CTO, there was nothing in the expectations that our CEO at the time had of me that says, hey, you've got to start a startup and internal university. Right. But um, I realized that that was what we could create the most amount of leverage with. Look, we are a, we are a services business at our core, right? We Yes, we have intellectual property that we bring to clients, but really building amazing leaders that are capable of leading change um, and being amazing craftspeople at the same time. That's where I saw the most leverage. And so I decided, hey, that's something that we've got to do. Let's figure out how to do it. Uh, we pulled in, you know, we pulled in help from um, some top universities. Um, we um, we leveraged, leveraged an organization called Hyper Island, which was great around leadership development in in, uh, in a digital world, and we put that program together. And I would advise, um, you know, anybody uh, faced with a situation where it looks like, you know, the future isn't exactly what they want it to be to really figure out from where I stand right now, do I have the ability to, to change the future? And if the answer to that is yes, and you have agency to do that, by all means do it. 
And what I found, uh, what I've always found in that process is that um, when you present a compelling case for why why you believe that to be true, other leaders, in that case, our leadership team, will come forth with resources and help to make that happen. Um, it just is a matter of asking and framing the the opportunity. Um, I think for, um, you know, if the answer to that is truly no, like, you know, you're not in a supportive environment where, you know, those kinds of ideas will not be received, then of course, you know, figure out whether you'd be better able to accelerate on a different platform. Um, but that's that's how I view things. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I like that sentiment right at the end there, the idea of kind of if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And so if you, like you said, if you have the agency and you you feel and believe very strongly in an opportunity that you can drive change with to shift the direction of that future, well, it won't happen as long as you don't ask for it to happen and build a compelling case, right? And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And I want to go back, though. You talked about your experience later uh, uh, with with the Chicago Stock Exchange in Thailand. You talked about this this sentiment that the traders there thrived on volatility. Now, I mean, the interesting thing, though, is that just across the two decades that you've been working in this space, there's been a ton of volatility in kind of the market conditions, in the technological like evolution, right? Uh, the disruption that has come from s- social media platforms, the you know uh, things moving into the cloud most recently, now like explosion in the power of like AI and machine learning, like these are massively disruptive technologies. And as we embark on things like the metaverse, like who knows what the potential is there with with crypto and everything else and blockchain, but like. Do you think that that mindset in terms of dealing with that volatility, thriving in it, and even leveraging the conditions that you are that you are observing in a market to to work in your favor, to steer into an outcome or or, or an impact, has that influenced kind of the way that you've approached your roles in leadership as well, and as well as you progress through your career? Look, um, you and I are in technology and. I mean, I see technology as a force for good. Um, I'm sure that's looking at the world through rose-colored glasses because as much as technology can be used for good, it can also be used in ways that, um, you know, create a lot of create a lot of damage. And so I think from a personal value standpoint, um, you know, I am very passionate about ensuring that the work that we do for our, for, for our clients, the work that I do, um, are drivers for positive for positive change. Right now, we happen to be in a place like tech, the the advancement of technology is is almost inevitable. But there is so much that we can do to steer to steer in a way that creates right. positive change. Right when I think about every one of the technologies you just mentioned, um, we live in a time where a lot has yet the future has yet to be. Um, to be created. And what I mean by that is you think about every one of these technology waves that we've been through, and you really need to have about three or four ingredients in order to get to mainstream usage, right? You need to have the core technologies, which you mentioned. You need for there to be killer applications, things that are useful to people uh, to, to use. You also need to change human behaviors, um, right? So think about something as basic as um as basic as toast, right? Um, for 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 instance, and you could say, well, you know, um, a toaster is a technology. That's that's fine. But you think about what it took to for a toaster to actually become as mainstream as it is today. You needed to 
arrive at, all right, people people need to be wanting to eat toast, right? Make it a <laughs> habit in the morning. That's one thing, right. right? So that's the use case. But you need to have other things. You need to standardize the thickness of bread and the size of bread in order to figure out like, all right, toasters have become mainstream. Right. And then you needed to actually have the same kind of voltage um, in our toasters in each country in order to basically make that, um, uh, you know, that, that use case work. So something as basic as every technology goes through that with, with whether it be with mobility, whether it be with, uh, with cloud, we'll go through these waves where we invent really interesting use cases we change corporate and human behavior, um, and we have supporting infrastructure that will be put in will be put in place. Now, coming back to your question around how do I see um, our role in it, it's like look, while those things, while we are changing human behavior, while we are building applications, while we are uh, figuring out infrastructure, there is there is arbitrage to be had. And look, um, we are. Um, you know, in the course of our careers, creating as long as we are creating value in the process of making those things, um, of changing human behavior, of creating use cases, um, you know, I find uh, tremendous, tremendous reward in in that. Now, with every one of these technologies, you reach a place, a point at which they just become mainstream. It's kind of, it's part of the woodwork, right? We don't, I, I'm sure that before before we just started talking about it, you didn't spend a lot of time thinking about your toaster, right? No, no I didn't. It just fades into the background. And all technologies will go through that life cycle. The interesting part is what do we do to actually create that, that future? That is such an elegant and simple analogy. But then I think about it through the lens, I can't help it, of my 100-year-old home that I live here in, 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 in Toronto. And for you mentioned, for example, you have to standardize the voltage. Every time I turn my toaster and my microwave on, my electric power shorts, right? Like the circuit shorts. And I think about that as like a reflection of society where if you don't build out the under the fa- the fabric under that innovation and and kind of the evolution of technology well then you have these inefficiencies or these kind of uh, these cracks in that experience right and and so it just feels like a, a perfect example of what you mentioned about evolving and solving for those types of things to get to a point where you don't think about your toaster anymore you don't think about all those considerations. It just becomes a part of behavior and and, and human and, and and kind of life. And that is a really interesting idea. And I wonder if you could almost parallel that with how you um, kind of uh, develop skill sets and grow and experiences in, in a career, right? Like you're faced with challenges. You have to evolve yourself and learn new things to to overcome those challenges or to be successful in those situations. But eventually those new skills fall into the background simply and become part of your identity as, as a professional and individual. And it's just part of the tool set and you don't think about them anymore uh, individually. Right. I think that's an interesting parallel to me that, that kind of jumps out and, it particularly resonates, I think, with the identity that I kind of assign to you as I think about you as a leader is, I mean, across at least like three or four of the conversations we've had in maybe even the last year, you know, you've recommended a book. And, and, and I think I admire the fact that somebody with a storied career like yours, who has, you know, by any objective measure, 
achieved success, right? I think a lot of people aspire towards, you know, I want to be a CEO one day. I want to be a CTO one day. I want to be a chief product officer one day. Like these are things people do aspire to and you've achieved them. And to, to still see that, you know, you've got a full shelf of books up there. You're recommending ones you just read and they're the diversity and the spectrum of learning that you have across these different topics that you recommend, I think is, 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 like a testament to like that never ending pursuit of, of new knowledge and skills, but something that people have to internalize and, and kind of really be, have that become part of their behavior just across a, a career and, and a life. Um, I, I, Peter, I'm so passionate about, about learning, right. Um, and it's learning for myself to, to help others, to learn how to learn, um, to help myself to improve at learning how to learn, it's the biggest um, thing that we can we can do for our careers, in in my view. And today we live in in a world in which um, you know learning resources are all over. No matter where you are, even if you're not um, you know working, right? I mean, there's so many free resources that are out there for us to uh, for us to gain knowledge from. And uh, once you have that, your ability to do additional things with that, to bridge disciplines, to bridge crafts, to be able to, you know, hey, you want to learn about, um, you want to learn about the arts, you can do that. You want to learn about um, artificial intelligence, you you can do that. The only thing that um, is the constraint is, is time. So, um, you know, the other piece that that really matters here is is how to reflect on on where you want to where you want to grow and being conscious about um, how you spend the time and in which in which resources. And so one other aspect um, that I just want to point out, in addition to, you know, just spending the time reading is actually choosing what to read and and where to invest. And for that, I tend to follow a fairly rigorous process of um, of grooming the people that I follow. So, mm. you know, on, or for instance, on, on social, I will follow certain people and I will keep that list, you know, fairly, I'll put some variety into that diet. So, you know, every quarter or so, I'll look at that and say, all right, you know, if I want to learn something new, I won't go out looking first for books. I'll look at uh, people that are in that space that tend to be generous in what they post on social. And I'll start following them and seeing, you know, what they are interested in and what they are talking about, which will then lead me to where, you know, what I should be studying or, or reading up on next. And that, that for me has proven to be a fairly successful approach towards getting into new spaces. And that's so simple. Like anybody can do that. Right. And that you've all, it's a, it's a passive, it's both active and passive because while there's an active decision-making in what to follow, right. And who, and, and curating that list, from that point onwards, it becomes a, a passive exercise because the just to, as we talked about it, like social media was something we thought about previously. Now it's something that we have a reflex to look at every time we have a pause in activity in our lives, right? And so you're just consuming passively at that point, following that active decision. I'm curious, you know, you have a pretty um, uh, insatiable appetite for learning. Do you purge that list or do you follow like thousands of people? <laughs> no, I purge that list. So if, for instance, if you look at my, um, at my Twitter list, it's usually somewhere right around a hundred, maybe, you know, some, sometimes it'll, it'll get to about 120, but it'll always stay on that range because, you know, you have to make a choice about, uh, um, choosing your filters, right? This actually came from a talk that I had heard, uh, Clay Shirky, back in 2009, 
he had um, delivered a talk where he talked about filters, um, which really stuck with me. And his concept was really simple. He was like, look, ever since the dawn of the um, or the invention of the printing press, we've always had more um, information to consume than we can reasonably consume. But um, in the early days of the printing press, the publishers would um, take on the responsibility of being the filter of what books got published because if the books didn't sell, they would lose money. So they they were the ones that were the arbiters of what got published. And in essence, they were the filters. So you would usually have books that had something useful to say. The problem today is that anybody can be a publisher. You can you know, create your own blog. You can create your own newsletter. You can publish, self-publish your books. There are more books being published today than, than ever before because the cost of publishing has actually dropped. So essentially, we don't have any new concept in information overload that's always been there, but mm. filters have failed. So that stuck with me. And when I realized that, I said, what's better at being a filter than human curators that are at the top of their fields that are just being generous with their time? So if you right. choose the right people to follow, you will actually get quite a perspective on the landscape and you don't have to pay anything for it other than the time I spend a quarter to actually figure out, all right, who's in that field that is really interesting and is at the top of their field and are they being generous? And then you follow them and you can learn a new space. One of this is, is a perfect example of why I so passionately continue to, to do this podcast and love and love it so very much is that in one conversation we can discuss such a broad and and deep topic as contrast, right? It, it's through the lens of, of like your story and how you grew up, but then also walk out of here with such a tactical uh, piece of information and, and kind of strat or, or tactic of how to uh, filter through what to consume and how to steer your learning. I think is a perfect demonstration of, of kind of what the value that I try and curate with some of these conversations. And I'm excited that we were able to achieve that today because the breadth of learning in this conversation for me personally, even is always, has been huge. So, um, I, I, I absolutely love that sentiment and, and it's, I, I mean, I'm, I've took the note down. I'm immediately going to apply that to my own social media follow, uh, follower group or whatever I, I, I consume. But Sheldon, this has been a spectacular conversation. I, I really do appreciate the time and I look forward to, to connecting again and doing a follow-up. That's awesome. So thanks for ha having me, Peter. I really enjoyed enjoyed the conversation as always as always with you. I love what you're doing with this podcast and I hope you're your uh, your listeners um, you know found something valuable to take out of uh, out of this chat i have no doubt they did thank you